0: An investor's investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional.
1: Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our special guest is Peter McKillen, the founder of Climate and Capital, a mission-driven information platform, exploring the business and finance of climate change, end quote. Peter comes to climate and capital following a long career as a journalist at Newsweek, interviewing everyone from Donald Trump to Imelda Marcos, and as a communications expert at virtually every large financial institution you'd like to name from BlackRock to KKR, from UBS to JP Morgan and Bank of America. Welcome Peter.
0: Thanks, John, for having me.
1: So you have an interesting origin story, starting with being born in Tunisia to a U.S. State Department family. So what is your origin story? How did you become the person you are today?
0: Well, it's an interesting story. Yes, it is true that I I was born in Tunisia. Um, my father was a diplomat. My mom came from Washington, D.C., and my entire family, uh, her sisters and and their husbands, all had uh, we're all in public service in in government uh state department and other places and so really it's been very much in, in kind of part of us since we were very very young uh to think about public service um as kind of a kind of key driver um of everything uh including our neighbors everyone in washington at that time uh was engaged in some form of public service there was a lot less in those days lobbying and private sector at uh, work there. <clears throat> so that really set the stage. Uh, I think we, uh, I then went through, through the kind of the, the early 70s with the Watergate era, Vietnam, and that really uh, it, it turned me off, to be honest, uh, around joining government uh, and being part of that. And of course, all of us at that time all wanted to be great investigative journalists. And so we were uh, enthralled with Woodward and Bernstein. We loved Hunter Thompson, the gonzo journalist, Tom Wolfe, the new journalism. Uh, that really drove us. Um, and many of us wanted, we got into journalism. I was very, very interested in, uh, in global journalism. Uh, and it's, it's funny, we took a year off, my friend and I, uh, and he's now editor actually of the uh, Harvard Business Review. And we decided we were, we call global writers. And we literally took a portable typewriter around the world determined to uh, to get published for the first time. And we actually got a couple of stories published, but the idea of lugging a typewriter around is pretty amazing, and I think about it in retrospect. Uh, then, um, yeah, then then finally did everything you had to do in those days to become a to become a journalist, got your clips, and I was lucky enough over time to first work at a great newspaper in Patterson, New Jersey, uh, and uh, which was an incredible story of every part of human drama you can imagine. And that allowed me over time to then finally get a, a role at, uh, become a correspondent, first a researcher, then a correspondent at Newsweek Magazine. Um, and and then the real dream was to be a foreign correspondent, uh, I had a chance to go to Hong Kong and uh, Japan. And I really was there at kind of a, a very unusual period for the world, which was peace uh, for the most part. And it was this kind of, a explosion of economic growth uh, and the the kind of rise of of democracy and the end of authoritarian regimes throughout Asia. So it was a very exciting time from a a kind of democracy perspective and covered the elections in Korea, Taiwan, Malaysia, uh, Indonesia, Philippines. Um, And then it moved up to Tokyo and really kind of watched uh, one of the world's most fascinating insular cultures kind of deal with this huge economic uh bubble that burst and did that for a few years and i think at that point i wanted to get into more and more into business and so i i did what most journalists do which is to kind of start off in public relations and at that point i started to meet more and more folks in in business and finance and money has always been a something that i'm very very interested in from a to be honest from a from a kind of academic perspective or and not so much about making it uh and so Yet the chance to work for some of the world's largest financial institutions just happened kind of almost one after another and had a chance to see every type of, uh, of, of financial business and transaction. So before we get
1: to, to the business side of it, when you were at Newsweek, um, you crossed paths with a number of interesting characters. <laughs> one of your stories had a uh, a resurrected life, I guess, and in 1987. So this is now 35 years ago, Right. you interviewed a then 41-year-old self-promoting real estate developer named Donald Trump, who told you, well, I'm not running for president, but if I ran, I'd win. Um, granted, it's you know, 35 years ago, but do you have any specific recollections or thoughts about that interview?
0: Well, first of all, it was a great, uh, we had, we spent many hours with him uh in all elements of his life um because we spent we worked on that story for almost two and a half three months uh, i mean i did other things but what was extraordinary was his sense of self-confidence and bravado and frankly nothing very little has changed in his outward presence and demeanor uh i think we were very focused on how savvy he was with the new york press how um be honest, how utterly craven he was about getting press, um, and was willing to do almost anything. And I've never had an easier interview. Uh, I've never had an easier access. Uh, he took us everywhere, from the U.S. Open to his to a you know to a, a, a Tyson Spinks fight. I think it was in Atlantic City. Um, you know, I think that what was fascinating to me was the kind of. The theme that I that bothered us at the end of the day was this obsession with beating everyone. And we interviewed so many people, small contractors who had he had almost forced out of business, uh, who had, for absolutely no reason, um, you know he would agree to a contract and then he would go back on his word and demand half the price of what he asked for. We, you know, given all his extraordinary access and We just couldn't understand why I think he did it out of almost pleasure of, of, of kind of winning the game. And I guess that's kind of his, his obsession. The only other thing I would say about him was he's a very engaging person one-on-one. And so in that sense, I can understand why he has been, why he's, he became president over time and became popular. And he does have a a way of communicating that, that Americans that can kind of get get, get cut below the the kind of the traditional elitist rhetoric that you have, but, um, but that, that sense, that, that mean streak in him, uh, of the, almost wanting to, you know, pick, you know, wings off a fly was, was, was something that we, it was very hard to kind of, was, was really difficult to understand.
1: So in addition to Trump and a number of other interesting people, it, when you were interviewing people, they were doing interesting things at the time. because mm-hmm. They're not interested in just um things this podcast may be interested you know peter mckillop is an interesting person i want to understand everything but it's not like you're making news at the time on the other hand there are times when you're not just interviewing newsmakers but you're helping to make the news like when you interviewed doug ginsburg uh, who's <laughs> nominated for the supreme court um what happened there
0: well that, that was it's a really interesting story because um if you remember going back to that era, there was, um, he was a very, uh, I think he was the alternative to Bork, if I remember correctly, and I wish I should have boned up on this. Uh, And uh, so that was was already a highly political environment. So when he was nominated, there was a lot of scrutiny. And somewhere uh, that started this rumor that he had smoked pot, which in those days was considered outrageous. No one in the establishment could possibly smoke pot of course everyone was um so i was told by my editors to get on the first plane to boston and just hunt down and find a find a source who had actually either seen doug ginsburg or smoke pot with him and so i went i beeline to harvard harvard law school and i did what good old classic journalism started banging on the doors of the professors saying hey do you know doug ginsburg uh you know and you know just Door after door, and I finally came across one guy, uh, Professor Hal Scott, who was a great guy, but uh, who sat back and said, "Oh yeah, I was. Uh, I've been at a couple of parties where where uh, where where I saw Doug smoke pot." And so we um, we wrote, you know, that's typical Newsweek. We 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 did a story on it, um, and we weren't the only people. I think we were one of the first people to absolutely have a second and thir- you know have a, someone who'd actually seen him smoke pot, and he eventually lost, you know, withdrew his nomination over this pot smoking event. Uh, and it just really, to me showed you the, uh, how political this all can get. Uh, and clearly he was, he was targeted to, they were going to defeat him one way or the other. And, and this, this, uh, this pot smoking was a perfect way to get at it.
1: Let me ask you a broader question sure. about these outsized personnel as you've spoken to Yeah. You've spoken to Spike Lee, Richard. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And you've worked for Henry Kravis at KKR and Larry Fink Mm at BlackRock. And this is a variant of a question I asked another journalist, Bethany McLean, uh, a couple of months ago. Mm. Do you have any thoughts about the similarities between successful people who have big personalities as to what drives them, what makes them seem to need public attention?
0: Yeah, each of them has a singular reason or, or, you know, purpose as to why uh, in the case of Henry Kravis, I I think it was to do with the fact that he was a competitive uh, son of a scion from Tulsa who was absolutely determined to take on and win New York uh maybe New York is is the the, the factor here uh and did it you know with all three I think Trump weirdly enough uh Kravis, Spike Lee, even Amalda Marcus, they have this kind of disarming element to them. And I always tell people, be careful of that word disarming. It's, it's meant for a reason. Disarming was just that. It's to disarm you, to defeat you. And that's really what, th- that, th- they all share this kind of charm, uh, but it's all meant to defeat you or to kind of win over what it is that they want. And I think that that singular focus on winning is another thing that, that they have all in common. I think they're all relatively charming. Another classic example was Steve Ross at 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 you when know, they love to perform, like you know, in front of journalists. Um, so they're on their best behavior, um, and they um, the other thing they 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 don't mind being kind of asked hard questions because uh, they kind of see it as sport. But I think it's this uh, this drive to win uh, at pretty much any cost. And there's something behind it. Obviously with Spike Lee, he had a lot of, he wanted, he had a, a very, you know, he wanted to really get the message out about, you know, about the black community at the time. In the case of Donald Trump, it was, he wanted to show the real estate world and New York and George Steinbrenner and all the big boys that he, he could play in their league. And in the case of Henry and George, they, they, they wanted to show the world that they were more than just Bear Stearns and. Uh, and and that more than just Ka kind of cup tells Tulsa Hicks that they were going to go out there and and really redefine finance. and 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 it's funny, it's those personal drivers that 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 come out time and time again. Let's jump forward to today. You've had a
1: very successful career, you know doing communications and marketing for some of the biggest financial institutions mm-hmm. in the world. What made you decide to launch climate and capital?
0: Yeah, well, so, I think what i I was um it was funny, I was just talking to another colleague of mine who le- recently left uh, Blackrock, and he's um, he's doing a book. I think part of it was I wanted to re re-regain my voice. that's a very selfish perspective. Um, I was always what's driven me has always been in, kind of an insatiable curiosity about about the world, about people, about politics, about money. Um, and I also was increasing, I've always been in, you know, I've worked in the environmental movement at the, in college and I've always was con- increasingly concerned. And, and the, clearly the climate issue uh, was becoming more and more uh, of an issue. This is what, three and a half years ago, obviously it's been around for 20 years or more, more, but it was really becoming important. And I felt that no one at the time, or there was very little coverage of it from a financial or business perspective. Um, what it, 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 clearly, I was part of. I wasn't the only person thinking about this because within six months of founding it, everyone from Bloomberg to the to the FDA, to the New York Times all started started looking at climate from more of a business and financial perspective. And it wasn't just the media that was doing it. Obviously, there was a the, this, this kind of surging movement within the investment industry itself. And in my last year at BlackRock, I had been where I oversaw all the communications for their ETF iShares group. Um, I had really focused on their latest initiative, which was, uh, which was um, ESG-related funds. And the way BlackRock works is, you know, they're going to find some new way of, of packaging an ETF that can, you know, that can really you know, reach kind of what they believe the clients want. So when I first got there, it was low-cost ETFs. Then it became fixed income or bond ETFs. Now it was going to all be about ESG ETFs. And and obviously that was aligned to kind of Larry Fink when he started writing about profit and purpose. So uh, I had all that behind me and I realized that that really what we were doing was marketing ESG funds. We weren't really trying to, to kind of solve the problem. It was more we saw demand and we wanted to to go after it um and i think that plus you know wanting to get back to journalism wanting to really you know dig into the, the business and finance of climate change were the primary drivers for doing what i did well i
1: think you, you've in the past used said what your filters are and part of your thesis is that we're in the early stages of the greatest shift to the economy since yeah. the industrial revolution and that your filters are you need three factors to combine right you need an entrepreneur a new technology and the capital necessary to scale that technology um can you give us two or three examples of situations that you found that have all three of those that are exciting to you
0: well let me give you the the one i'm i'm most fascinated by uh twiggy forest down in in australia twiggy uh great name by the way uh is one of the largest iron ore producers in the world and he's one of rich australia's richest men uh and he had decided i don't know when but we when we when we checked in and started talking to his this team and him not him personally uh he over covid decided he was going to focus more and more on green hydrogen at the time and green hydrogen was seen as kind of pie in the sky that it was uh, oh you know you know you use renewable energy to create hydrogen gas which is then you know, uh, you know, carbon free. And what he did was say, maybe, maybe not. He then spent the next nine months just traveling through the COVID era throughout the world, meeting uh, all these, going to all these developing nations, um, got COVID, had all sorts of issues, but came back Has you know, and has now, you know, is reallocating hundreds of millions of dollars to, you know, to focus on what he sees as a critical transition for Australia, which historically has been all about exporting iron ore, or coal. And his argument is that sooner than later, their traditional uh, partners and customers are gonna be demanding things like green hydrogen if they're gonna meet Paris, the Paris agreements, not coal. So he sees it as an extraordinary opportunity uh, to kind of scale and to do it globally and to do it in parts of the world uh, that historically would have been dependent on fossil fuel, so I think that's to me um, a, 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 an example of really big scale. Another example is a guy named Danny Kennedy of New Energy Nexus. Now he does it a completely different approach. Uh, his approach is he is he go, he's looking around the world for young energy entrepreneurs. Maybe it's a solar guy in the Philippines or someone doing something in Indonesia, and he's like focusing and funding uh, these young entrepreneurs so that he's looking at it from almost like the bottom up versus the way twiggy horus is looking at it which is from the, t- the top down um, so I think those are I think two examples um, of the the kind of work that, that we are always on the lookout for um, to find those kind of those, those kind of People who are who are kind of trying to um, break convent- break down conventional wisdom, uh, have a good business model, and, and, are, and are going ahead and starting to execute around it.
1: We're focusing on the private sector and mm-hmm. um, changes. There's a, a another school of thought about how to solve the climate crisis: sure. the degrowth movement, whose <laughs> advocates say that until we stop wanting to have more then stop thinking that growth is positive, we just can't solve the crisis. What's your
0: reaction to it I think' it's, I think it's xenophobic and absurd uh, because anyone who says that hasn't clearly lived in Africa or, or lived in Asia, and we're basically saying, okay, let me get this straight. We are going to just stop growth." Well that's interesting. Tell that to Africa, which is just you know getting its. You know, it's emerging economies going. Um, tell that to, to the emerging nations in Asia. Tell that to the, you know, the what, to billions of people that we keep adding to the, to the planet at this point. How are you going to stop growth, feed a planet, and create, you know, living sustainable lifestyles outside of this very privileged world that thinks that we can just move back to growth? Having said that, and this is where it gets a little tricky, could we reduce consumption in the West? Absolutely. And I think there's a absolute correlation between fossil fuel growth, consumption, uh, and frankly, kind of the rulemaking first after the World War II, but certainly accelerating after, you know, pres- after Ronald Reagan became president. And there's a direct correlation between that and the, and the rising temperature over the last 40 years. Consumption. So I I think that consumption is a is a very major issue, but I don't think you should you should you need to differentiate consumption with growth. And I think that you have to, you know, growth you can't just stop and say that the world is gonna be it has to uh, stop growth, that's to create less carbon in the air, because by doing so you're you're stunting growth through much of the world, which is just beginning to kind of emerge from you know, merge into kind of middle-classdom or, or, you know, overcoming some of the most basic human issues of housing, health, and, and food security. What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about? I am so passionate about everything right now. Uh, I think, and, and this is, you know, I know you've written about this. I think that we are facing these extraordinary systematic threats to, to civilization. And they've almost come back to back. The first one obviously was the dawning realization that around climate change and that we were potentially gonna have the kind of climate poisoning extreme, you know, kind of climate that could really have a horrible impact on the earth. And I think you're seeing something even this week in out in, in Pakistan and India where, where you could see some real issues. The second one obviously was the pandemic, um, which was extraordinary in its globality um, but also in the ability to see change happen almost overnight to meet this pandemic. Never have we locked ourselves down as, a, as an earth. Never have we seen you know, the kind of the movement to create a, a vaccine as fast as, as we saw in, in, during the pandemic. And frankly, the third and the most disturbing is the war in Ukraine, where all of a sudden, for the first time since World War II, there's a potential for a thermonuclear war. Well, these three things are happening all at once, and it's going to impact everything that we are all experiencing. Whether that's inflation, whether that's the price we're paying for the gas pump, it's a, the the potential for a food crisis in, in six to twelve months. Uh, we still don't know where where COVID is going, and frankly, COVID is just one of many health global health scares that that we're beginning to kind of have to you know you know come to grips with. So may you live in interesting times, um, but it is probably the most interesting time since I've been alive. Um, and I think it's a huge kind of transition for humans uh, as we move from the industrial economy or industrial era into maybe the technology era, or knowledge or whatever. And, but we're facing these extraordinary challenges and uh, you know who's, who knows what's going to happen? Let's finish with a couple of quick questions and answers. Mm-hmm. What are you reading right now? Oh, gosh. Uh, I am reading this book here called The Rise and Fall of the City of Money, A Financial History of Edinburgh. And why is that fascinating? Because, because it was an alternative financial system to the Bank of England was created. I'm Scottish. I'm of Scottish descent. I had no idea how influential and and powerful the scottish financial system was uh, and then what made it even more interesting is when i ended when i went to hong kong i realized that, that it wasn't really the brits who ran hong kong it was the scots and they had built an, an almost equivalent financial system uh in hong kong so i think th- that's a book I'm, I'm reading now obviously i've read all the the climate books um i'm also someone who just devours uh newspapers and uh you know the economy, all the anything I can read, um, I I try to do all day long. But uh, but that yeah. So that's what I'm reading right now. How do you relax? Swimming, <laughs> running. Uh, I really relax by by reading, talking, engaging. I you know talking dinner parties. Uh, there's nothing I enjoy more than engaging in rigorous debate and new ideas and you know, meeting new people. I you know people say, oh, I can't believe you lived in New York City during during the COVID pandemic, I couldn't have thought of a more exciting place to be, to watch the, the ebb and flow of, of this extraordinary pandemic, to see kind of a city come and go, come back to life, go back to life, meet the people, go to all the bars, walk around the town. That, that's what keeps me, You know, I, I, that's, what, that's what I love. Interesting. What music do you listen to? Any favorite artists? I'm a very much kind of an old jazz fusion guy. Frank Zappa, Herbie Hancock, Stanley Carr, guys like that. That was kind of very much my um, my my '70s upbringing. I love Santana, but but and need, and please, I'm going to have to get my phone out. But I've really got um, my son, who is 20, is very very involved with urban uh, hip hop music, and he has really taught me and made me learn to appreciate kind of the urban music that's coming out today. Uh, and it's it's you know it, it's it's way, it's gone way beyond its early rap days. And what's so fascinating is that they're using backbeats and draw, and melodies and back from the '70s. So you get some great uh, you get some uh, you know great Gil Scott Heron, and they're bringing him back to life. Um, and so I'm really fascinated by by how the particularly the, the some of the major urban artists now are, are going back to their roots and not just Motown, but, but guys like Gil Scott Heron, uh, Barry White, uh, you know, really kind of excellent kind of, uh, soul and, uh, and kind of urban music. And they're mixing that up and bringing it, bringing it back to life in a, in a slightly different format in, in, in the, in our era.
1: Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in America something whispered to their ear,
0: what would you tell them? engage engage stop consuming and engage start talking more to your neighbor every person wants to be part of something and and it's never been even more important and i think the more you engage the happier you will be so i was very anxious about climate change uh and i was very anxious about the financial system and all these these are things i read about in the newspaper but the only way that I calmed down was by forming climate and capital. And I started engaging, started talking to people, started writing, started meeting people, started creating, you know, whatever it is. To me, that, uh, that's the solution. That's for me personally. I think if everyone did that, if they spent less time on their phones and more time talking to, to people and meeting new people and, and really asking themselves kind of, I know I can do something. I know, I mean, anyone can, and it doesn't matter what community you're in. And I think that, that the more people feel that, the, 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 more, uh, the more happier they will be. And I think the more constructive we will, we will be. Don't let, don't get overwhelmed by the media. Don't get overwhelmed by the, the, the nature of the problem. Just start engaging with people. And, and if you can do that in a way that, that you feel you're being helpful, I think you will be a much happier person.
1: You've been listening to Outside In with John Lukumnik and our special guest today, Peter McKillop. As you've heard, Peter has a journalist's eye, a strategist's head, and an advocate's heart. It's certainly made for an interesting career, an interesting life, and for this podcast at least, interesting listening. Thank you, Peter.
0: That's a great summary, John. I I think it's probably the nicest summary I've ever heard.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to Spark Networks Outside In with John Lukumnik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukumnik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.